Please turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, we will look at verses 1 through 20. The parable of the sower and its explanation. Mark 4, 1 to 20. Let us give our attention to God's infallible word. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in light of what we have just heard from our brother, may we be convicted yet encouraged that the word is going to all the nations and that we have the complete word, the final closed canon, the final sun revelation in the Lord Jesus, and how little we avail ourselves of it. May it not be so here. May it not be so in your church. Reform her, cleanse her. May she ever grow into greater fruitfulness, greater abundance, abundance in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. People of God, we think far too little of the kingdom of God. The parable of the sower is not merely a contrast of four kinds of people, forcing us to ask ourselves into which category we belong. 
It is that, but it is more. In this parable, Christ reveals the kingdom of God to the eyes of faith, while he veils the kingdom to the blind eyes of unbelief. It is mysteriously at once a revealing and a veiling. The parable of the sower shows that all mankind falls into one of these four categories. The soil along the path, the rocky soil, the thorns, or the good soil. Notice why the seed does not take root in those first three scenarios. It is not because the seed is defective or because it was sown poorly. It is because the soil is bad. The bad soil is hostile to the seed. When the seed of the gospel is spread, the unbelieving heart rejects the seed because it is bad soil. The believing heart receives the seed because it is good soil. Those who reject the gospel of the kingdom do so because their hearts are hostile toward it. Those who receive the gospel of the kingdom do so because their hearts are good soil, and they are so only by grace. The fallen human heart is not good soil. It does not naturally receive the seed and produce a harvest. That is done only by the gracious work of God. In this parable of the kingdom, Christ reveals the mystery of the kingdom. What was promised by God in the scriptures had finally arrived in Christ in the fullness of time. We see, first of all, something of what the kingdom is. We must first appreciate that the kingdom of God is not the same thing as God's providence. The kingdom is not a general affirmation of God's dominion and preservation of all creation. Rather, the kingdom is the special lordship of God over his people, his special lordship in the fellowship of the covenant. It is his special rule over a holy people and a holy realm in covenant. In order to get a clearer picture of the kingdom, we need to set this parable in the context of what has already happened in the book of Mark. After Jesus is baptized and then tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days, he announces his mission and what he requires of all men. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice that the gospel and the kingdom are intimately related. You cannot have the one without the other. You cannot rightly think of the one without the other. The coming of Christ to accomplish redemption for his people fits hand in glove with the coming of his kingdom. Later in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is accused of demonic possession because he is able to cast out demons. He responds to this by saying that his ability to cast out demons is not because he is possessed by them, but because he is binding Satan and bringing the kingdom of darkness to an end. In bringing the kingdom of darkness to an end, Christ is establishing the kingdom of God. Matthew's account makes this more explicit. Matthew twelve twenty eight. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is in this kingdom context that Jesus tells the parable of the sower. The kingdom of God is not a New Testament reality. It is a biblical one. Jesus assumes that his audience understood him when he spoke of the kingdom because they would know the scriptures. Jesus is not saying, here's a brand new thing you've never heard of before. He is saying that the kingdom of God promised in the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, which no mere prophet, priest, or king had been able to establish, that kingdom has finally come. 
and the king is establishing it once for all. To cite just one example of an Old Testament promise of the kingdom, Hebrews refers to the kingdom spoken of in Psalm 45 and its fulfillment in Christ. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. But of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus assumes that his hearers understand something of the kingdom of God because it is spoken of in the Old Testament. The promise of the kingdom in the scriptures is fulfilled in Christ. In the context of Christ's public ministry in his first coming, the nation of Israel was under Roman occupation. Many of the Jews expected him to lead a military campaign to drive out the Gentiles and establish a political kingdom. The people thought their need for their political problem was a political gospel. They wanted a gospel that was of this world, not of the world to come. In large measure, for the Jews at the time, the teaching of Scripture had taken a backseat to human tradition. There was a failure to see the promise of the kingdom throughout Scripture. Here's a brief sketch. In man's original state of righteousness, the kingdom was begun. In the fall, the kingdom was lost. In the theocracy, the kingdom was foreshadowed. In the prophets, the kingdom was predicted. In the gospels, the kingdom is established. In the book of Acts, the kingdom is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. In the epistles, the kingdom is expounded to the churches. In the book of Revelation, the kingdom is consummated. Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Secondly, we see who the kingdom is for. Remember in verse 11, Jesus tells the disciples that they have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. That word mysterion, translated here as secret, is better translated mystery. Herman Ritterboss identifies the mystery of the kingdom of God this way. That the kingdom of God is coming as a seed, seemingly the weakest and most defenseless thing there is. It can be devoured by the birds, it can be choked by the thorns, it can be scorched by the sun, and sometimes it can hardly be distinguished from the tares. That is the secret of the kingdom. Remember we mentioned earlier that the gospel and the kingdom are intimately related. In the same way, not surprisingly, the kingdom and the king are intimately related. That helps us better to understand what the mystery of the kingdom is. Two passages from Paul that talk about the mystery in relation to Christ. Colossians 2.2. Paul speaks of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Mystery there identified as Christ. Romans 16.25. Paul relates the gospel of Christ with the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and made known to all nations. The mystery there, shown to be revealed in the coming of Christ. Let me illustrate this way. Think of how the shorter catechism speaks of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. His suffering unto death, followed by his resurrection and ascending to God's right hand. We should think of the kingdom in the same way. In this age, the kingdom is hidden, invisible, and secret. In the age to come, the kingdom is visible, open, and public. 
In this life, the kingdom manifests in weakness and suffering. In the life to come, the kingdom manifests in power and glory. Christ's humiliation and exaltation can help us to understand the mystery of the kingdom better. Mystery and kingdom may not be part of our day-to-day vocabulary, but they are key aspects of the accomplishment of redemption, key aspects of Christ's person and work. Notice also in verse 11 that the mystery of the kingdom has been given to the disciples. The disciples are passive here. The mystery is not Gnostic wisdom for the select few who apply themselves or join a secret group. The mystery of the kingdom is sovereignly granted to the disciples by God. It is not something they attained for themselves. In God's wise electing purposes, he grants the mystery of the kingdom to those who are in Christ, and he veils the kingdom to those who are in Adam. Those who are in Christ have the secret of the kingdom. Those who are outside of Christ are given parables. Just as we saw with the kingdom, we we get a clear picture of what parables are from the Old Testament. Psalm 78, 1 through 3. Give ear to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. The rest of that psalm recounts the mighty acts of God on behalf of his people as he redeems them. Psalm 78 is the teaching, or parable, of God's work of redemption. That is essentially what Christ's parables are, teaching about the kingdom of God. Notice the intent of the parables, verse 12 of Mark 4. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That is hardcore. The intent of the parables is to veil the blind eyes of sin. Also to reveal the king and his kingdom to the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith see what the blind eyes of sin cannot see. Christ and his kingdom are foolishness to those outside, but wisdom to those who eagerly await their coming. A stench of death to those who are perishing, the aroma of life to those who are being saved. There is a night and day difference, a life and death difference between those who have been given the mystery of the kingdom and those who are outside. You may notice that Jesus grounds his rationale for speaking in parables in Isaiah 6. Isaiah is a prophet whose mission from God was to preach to people who would not be converted. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God. It is in his ministry that this charge to Isaiah is fulfilled. The commission to Isaiah has greater intensity in Christ's ministry because while Isaiah was a herald for someone else, Jesus was preaching about himself. Isaiah spoke of the kingdom that was yet to come. Jesus spoke of the kingdom that he had established. The context of this Isaiah passage will bring more clarity. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, verse 9. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, 
and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Here, God brings judgment upon the covenant community. He sends the unfaithful and disobedient into exile and brings forth a holy remnant. In Isaiah, God fulfilled his promise by sending the unbelieving Jews into exile. In Christ's ministry, God fulfilled his promise by hiding the kingdom from the unbelieving Jews. The iniquity of Israel had been brought to completion, and the time had come for the kingdom to be given to the Gentiles. And this is illustrative of the process of differentiation God has placed in history. God distinguishes the elect from the reprobate, the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent. God will bring his elect remnant to salvation and the unbelieving mass to judgment. In Isaiah, that discriminating process was displayed in exile, and it was displayed with greater intensity in Christ's parables. We now live prior to the consummation of the kingdom, which means that it will have wheat and tares in this age. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all who are in the covenant are of it. At the consummation, however, this process will be brought to completion. God will finally and perfectly cleanse the kingdom so that there is only wheat, and the tares are thrown into the fire. Commenting on this Isaiah 6 passage, E.J. Young says, That which makes a distinction among men is grace, sovereign grace, and sovereign grace alone. Third and finally, we see how the kingdom comes. In his explanation of the parable in verses 14 to 20, Jesus is not saying that there is a one in four chance of the word being received any time it is spread. Rather, he is saying that there are three ways of rejecting the word as opposed to the one way of accepting it, which means there are really only two options, either rejection of the word in sin or reception of it by the power of the Spirit. You'll recall that not everyone rejoiced at the coming of the Messiah. Remember that the elite Pharisees put Jesus to death and low-life tax collectors trusted in him. Not all the Pharisees hated Jesus, of course, and not all the tax collectors trusted him. But this illustrates the offense of the gospel as the kingdom was taken away from Israel and given to the Gentiles. In these first three scenarios of the seed being rejected, Jesus highlights the different reasons for its rejection. Destruction immediately along the path, withering in the rocky soil, or gradual gradual degeneration because of the thorns. In the first scenario... The seed along the path falls on soil where Satan stands close by. The word of God is inherently powerful, and God always accomplishes what he wants in it. Christ crushed the head of the serpent once for all in his death and resurrection, but Satan still actively seeks to prevent the gospel from spreading. Satan still roams the earth as a roaring lion looking to prevent the spread of the gospel. The seed in the rocky soil is a picture of a temporary 
and external faith. It shows what seems to be the promise of fruit, but there is nothing substantial under the surface to make it fruitful. There is no lively affection, no promise of perseverance. If the word does not penetrate and take root, faith will lack the nourishment needed for the long run. These people are made uneasy by the offense of the cross. They are temporary, not just because they fall away after some time, but because they think they have true faith and never really did. They formerly respect Christ in his kingdom, but they do not believe. The seed among the thorns is choked by the covetousness of this present evil age. There is a preference for this life as opposed to the life to come. There is a, de- a desire for the creation rather than the creator. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and they have bought into the deceitfulness of riches. Only what can be seen reigns supreme. Only what can be handled is sought after, and so the word proves unfruitful. Lastly, there is the good soil. Here is a picture not of a perfect faith, but a real one. Not one of superabundance, but one that is genuinely fruitful. Quality begets quantity. The word is really received, and so there is real growth. There's no indication here that we should shoot for having a harvest of 100-fold as opposed to 30-fold. Our concern is to be receptive of the word, to remove everything that will hinder the seed from bearing fruit. In time, God will grant the harvest that he wants. This is described well in the chapter on good works in the confession when it says that we, quote, ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in us, end quote. Notice that the scenario of the seed on the good soil is the simplest. It is not simple in the sense that it is easy, but in that it has the fewest parts. No Satan, no persecution, no worldliness, just the successful establishment of the kingdom and fruitful growth and obedience. That, of course, is not to say that Satan or persecution or worldliness never threaten the kingdom, but it is to say that once God establishes his kingdom, it cannot be overturned. Once God delivers from the domain of darkness and transfers his people to the kingdom of his beloved son, that can never be reversed. Once the seed takes root in the good soil and yields a harvest, it will withstand and overcome Satan and the cares of the world because it has been planted by God. The things around the seed are not as important as what roots the seed. There is genuine growth, not in the absence of Satan or trouble or worldliness, but in spite of these things, because God gives the growth. The seed is able to withstand all things above the surface because of what lies beneath the surface. As we come to a close, think of how Psalm 92 uses the same kind of gardening language used in this parable. However, in that psalm, instead of a seed, it speaks of a mature tree. Turn with me to Psalm 92. Psalm 92, verse 12. Listen to the imagery of God's people growing like a tree. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of our God. 
They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is what it means for the gospel of the kingdom to take root and grow. God's people said, 